Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Sister Christian, oh, the time has come. And you know that you're the only one to say, okay. I dedicate that Night Ranger MTV classic to two women who have profoundly affected my career, steering me from asset management to financial journalism, and then holding my hand into the audio catastrophe that is my here and now. I cherish their advice. I cherish their mentorship. I call them my sisters from other misters. Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast to Full Disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompsons, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompsons, located in Richmond's Carytown. Lauren, Jenny, oh, the time has come. <laughs> To rave about your boy on NPR One. It's true. Dot com Enron subprime zero rates. What in the world will we do when the Fed applies the brakes? That's why you're joining us from NPR's New York City studios. Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters. How are you, dear? Well, let me just hold my lighter up a little bit closer to the microphone, Robin, so everybody can feel the burn of my love for you. Oh, shucks. I will sing Free Bird <laughs> for you afterwards. <laughs> and Jenny Van Leeuwen Harrington, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Gilman Hill, an income-oriented asset management shop. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. By way of background, again, these are uh, the women who have inspired my career arc over the last 20 years. Um, Jenny was the first of 34 interviews I had at Goldman Sachs in 1998, and I was terrified, and I showed up there in the spring of 98 um, thinking, oh my gosh, if I can con these guys into giving me a job. And there's this sweet little redheaded woman that looks at my resume, and she's like, sit down, have a seat kick back a little. And uh, she looks up and down my resume. I worried, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal and the FT and everything. And she just looks to the very bottom of it and sees my interest. She's like, oh my gosh, I love sushi. Do you love sushi? And that was all downhill from there. So um, uh, thanks to you for helping me get that job, the first of 34 interviews. And Lauren Young was the editor who I sat next to, um, when I shifted to magazine journalism, first at Smart Money Magazine, and then she helped me get my gig at Business Week, where I was Wall Street editor for a long time. And I just thought maybe I'd bring them together and we'd discuss the meaning of life and investing. It's much like if I had a conference call with these two mentors and opened it up to the world. So voila. What do you guys think? I think you're fabulous, Robin Farzad. We love you so much. There's so much love in this room right now that we're like bursting. It's amazing. It's. I wish I. I wish I were in New York with you. But you know what? We're gonna do it in person. We're gonna do it live. Um, uh, you guys, take bring me up to speed because the world has changed eight times over since uh, for, we first crossed paths. Right. We are at a period of zero interest rates now for almost uh, seven years, seven years since the Fed brought them to emergency levels in 2008. There's a lot of consternation about this record bull run that no one seems to care about, Lauren. I mean, and here you are, money editor at Reuters. So what's your state of mind? My state of mind is good. I mean, first of all, I'm totally in summer mode, so everything's la, 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 la good. But I do think, you know, at some point the, the party does have to stop and interest rates do have to rise and all indications are it will happen sometime. I just feel like such a broken record because I think we've been telling people for a really long time rates are going to go up, rates are going to go up. But the Fed is indicating that. So that's one thing. And investors do need to prepare for that. But state of mind is, you know, companies 
for the most part, the earnings are pretty good. I mean, we've had some misses along the way this quarter, but they're making money. There are jobs being added to the economy. They're not like gangbusters, but it's not. It's it's we're in good. It's good stuff. It's summer loving right now. But why? I mean, you're talking about the party. The party has to end. Je- Jenny, you've written to clients several times, and you as a money manager, that this is kind of a feel-bad rally. We've gone, the S&P has gone from the ominous 666 in March of 2009 to 2100, you know? It's three-bagged, and uh, no one's out there dancing in the streets. You don't don't hear about the stock market culture, anything much like what we heard in 1999 and 2000, and contrarians say that's a good thing. Well, it's definitely not summer loving for me. I I envy Lauren her summer. I just got back from a week of seeing clients last week and there's just there there's been no happiness and no euphoria on this whole ride up from the low in 2009 until now and now people feel even worse and they're scared and they're I've actually seen a few little um, glimmers of people pulling money out and stopping investing which is interesting so so that hasn't stopped in this ride but it's starting to happen now um, it's definitely not a feel-good summer here <laughs> but I mean look- Jenny Go ahead. She manages money, whereas I just get to write about it. So it's very different when you're, you know, in the driver's seat versus being chauffeured around in your Uber in the back seat. Right. And, and my clients are both the advisors who work with the underlying client as well as I have some direct relationships. So I'm seeing um, less apprehension at the advisor level. They're taking that more kind of professional, hey, you know, these are normal market cycles. But at the individual level, there's there's a lot of nerves and people are getting really scared this year. We could have taken that comment, though, at any point over the last, you know, obviously in, in 2008 and 2009 when things were free-falling. But you could have said that in 2010 during crash period. You could have said it in 2011 with Europe. You know, everything past that, the pigs, is Europe going to yep. bail out their financial, their, their weaker economies? Hey, we got past Greece, right, Robin? I mean, Greece is the was... word. <laughs> well, I don't know if we I look, I don't even know if we got past that. The point is, is you hear that cliche that the markets always have to climb a wall of worry. And this has been like, you know, this has almost been like Super Mario Brothers 1989 vintage. There have been 50 walls to have to climb. And in the meantime, I think if you poll man on the street who by and large is not overly invested in the market, they'd tell you that things aren't so great out there. And I see that I disagree with that because I feel like I deal with the person on the street, the, the, the chick and the dude on the street a lot. And for the most part, I have people asking me constantly, like, I think I need a financial advisor now. I need a little more help. I'm starting to get a little more money. Um, my house is worth more money. So friends that were out of work are finding jobs. So maybe this is a very East Coast mentality. But I do. I have global reach here, Robin. And because you party in the Hamptons on the weekends, you take the yacht. Jersey Shore, (laughs) pumping all the way, baby. Um, That's why I call you the discount personal finance diva, right? We're not going to name the the premium price ones. But if you get flown out for a speech, like you do weddings, you do bat mitzvahs, you do funerals, you'll fly coach. You'll take a very little honoraria to to hold people's hands. I am the value investor of personal finance. That's for sure. I always want the best deal. But but the bottom line is I do. I talk to a lot of people, and particularly millennials right now, because there's been so much focus on them. Millennial, millennial, millennial. Um, And they are investing money. Like, this is the next generation of investors, and they are more cautious, and they've seen their parents get burned. But at the same point, they are putting money in the market. That's interesting. Jenny, do you have millennial clients? Um, not many. The only ones I have are the kids of existing clients. Who kind of kicking and screaming come to you, all right, miss, manage my money. Um, no, not kicking and streaming, screaming, but they've been raised in a family that values professional portfolio management. So they come like with the mindset of someone who's much older than them. 
Well, think about both of your uh, careers, both writing about money and managing it. Jenny, you were previously at Newberger Berman, and before that, you and I crossed paths at Goldman Sachs. Uh, where you in the asset management and private client services division. If you just took the cross-section of the last 15 years, the majority of those 15 years have had emergency interest rate policy. Uh, if we talk about the three years after 9-11 and the seven years after uh, the shock of 2008, the crisis of 2008, when the Fed has kept rates at zero, and we, it's like waiting for Godot for them to take rates up. Uh, so do you, ever, do you ever deal with this meaning of life question at night, uh, Jenny or Lauren? Like, what would the world be like with normal, whatever normal rates are? I think about it all the time because what my vision is, and I'm only half kidding here, is that we'll see rates back at what I would consider normal levels, which is when you and I started in the business, when you could actually buy muni bonds at five and a half, six percent, you could buy taxable bonds at eight percent. And I half joke with my clients, if we see those again, I'll no longer be a dividend income manager. I'm going to be a muni manager. I'm going to sip cocktails on the beach for the rest of my career. And none of us are going to worry because we'll get a lot of tax-free income. So I do dream about it. I don't really think I'm going to see it in this lifetime. Lauren, where the heck are we? I mean, we talk about this record bull market for bonds. Uh, you're no spring chicken. You're, you're very youthful looking. You look wonderful. Well, you was young, Farzad. Be careful. I'm young. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is now. I mean, again, it's crazy. It's like crying wolf. Bull market and bonds began in what 1981, 1982, and and every time people have have, have exclaimed that the death of bonds is near. That hasn't happened, right? I mean, didn't you write that cover story of Business Week? No, I no me. You're saying what? Death of equities? No, yeah, that was a fun one. No, I never, I never did that. Look, you are hugely subscribed to Lauren. I see, as of last count, you have 27 million Twitter followers, Um, and they're they're all waiting for you to come out there. It's like you know the white smoke coming out of the Vatican. This is the thing about me, Robin, and I love you, and I love your show, and I love listening, but I don't pay attention to anything. I am, I literally, like I said, I've been at the beach all summer. I keep my head in the sand. All of the noise for me, it's a lot like all the political commentary right now. Ugh. I, you know, you just stick with it. You, you diversify, you're slow and steady, and you're okay. And yeah, maybe you have to tweak around the edges every once in a while, but I don't care if Apple's at X or Y or Z. It doesn't matter to me. I'm in it for the long haul. And I know that sounds really boring. And I'm not as old as Jack Bogle, but he's so awesome. Well, um, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, don't let the door hit you where God splits you. Thank you, Lauren Young. Um, Great to have you with us today. Uh, that will Peace just leave. <laughs> well, really, no. So there's no there's no advantage in kind of you know Jack Bogle has said famously, "Don't just do anything; sit there." And you are of that school of thought firmly. I really am. I you know what? I grew up in Philadelphia. It's like by osmosis because Vanguard is there, and that's how I grew up. And I've listened to these people for so long. And you know, I'll, obviously, I work for one of the largest news organizations in the world. I know what's happening in the world. I read the stories and you know interesting stuff like. Every day there's great stuff out there to, to pay attention to. But when push comes to shove, it's noise. It, you know, if you're in it for the long haul, it doesn't really matter. Like I was just talking to Jenny before the show about her portfolio. She's down this year. She might may or may not tell you that. But she's delivering amazing income to her investors. And that's really what you're supposed to be doing. Right, Jenny? I mean, that's the whole that's the whole objective. And that gets into a whole dilemma in our business, too, which is managing to the benchmark versus managing to the objective. Right? People just hear the S&P's up 2.5% or the S&P's up this, and, and that's all they can focus on, where the better idea is to go back to the Jack Bogle thing, take a chill, relax, know that your portfolio is doing what it's going to do for you, and take a more, I don't know, a, a more broad, thoughtful perspective on your on your investments. And you can have 
play money and do stuff with it if you want to buy, you know, cool stocks or invest in Tesla or whatever it is. There's, you know, stuff out there that we're waiting for the Uber IPO. But I don't know, over the long haul, Robin, and maybe, you know, you can kick me out now, just get me the hook, but it doesn't really matter. This is funny. So a really good friend of mine, she's a portfolio manager. She was the state treasurer of, um, well, she was a state treasurer. She was a lawyer. She's a portfolio manager. And she always jokes that the best strategy she's ever managed is her own IRA, which she calls her callous on the butt portfolio. <laughs> and she's from Philly, by the way. <laughs> um, but she just has done nothing with it. Her, It was her own IRA, which she, you know, bought I don't know, $15,000 worth of some stock here and there way back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And it's the best performing portfolio she has because she just leaves it alone and doesn't fret too much and doesn't worry about it. It is not the sexy answer, though. People like portfolio managers and money people to always have a great idea and always seem smart when I think a lot of it is just patience and sitting back and maybe not trying to be too cute. You, um, though, this is a significantly distorted market. You could take a Jack Bogle who, yes, he is passive, but if you talk to him, he says in, in, in specific kind of twice-in-a-lifetime events, he does move money around or he does suggest to people that things are so distorted, like with the dot-com boom in 2000 to go overwhelmingly into bonds. And at the present, this is a huge dilemma for anybody that wants to be in that traditional 60-40 portfolio. How do you invest 40% of your portfolio? Suppose you're 40 years old and you have to put that portion in bonds in an asset class, which is almost certainly going to lose money over the next decade. I mean, rates are going up. There's been a lot of, uh, uh, of, of irresponsible uh, corporate lending. The junk bond market has been beyond gangbusters. So then how do you just set it and forget it, Lauren? I mean, it's like a minefield. I agree. But I think there are different things you can do with bonds to, to protect yourself, right? You can ladder. You can, um, you know, I, it's so cliche, but you can go for the high quality stuff. It's not going to lose that much in terms of its overall principle. And if you're looking for yield, you know, you want you do your research and you want something that's really credible. I, I actually think munis are still interesting, Jenny, even though depending on where you live and if it makes sense for you. But, you know, municipalities still have to issue debt and they still have to get the job done and deliver water and deliver all the services that they have to do. So the, there's there's a need for, for investors to do that. And I think the key is that this, the safe haven in bonds is buying individual bonds. I think you have a lot of risk if you're in bond funds, closed-end mutual, even exchange-traded. But if you own the individual bond, to Lauren's point, look, you own a municipality, it may only be paying 1.5%, but at least you know that if that municipality is safe, you're getting your 1.5%. Let it fluctuate in between now and when it matures. Or, or if you own a high-quality taxable bond, at least you're locking in your 2.5 or 3%. If you own the bond funds, I think there's a lot more risk there. So if you... It's scarier to me that there's no yield in cash right now because, you know, for people who need access to money, where do you park it is is, is a huge problem. You and read my mind that... like a true mentor, Lauren. You read my mind, and that's the question. Go ahead and ask Jenny Van Leeuwen. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the, the other side of if you need cash, where do you park it? There's not only that dilemma, but the other dilemma is I think with no yield in cash, it puts increased pressure on on investors to stay out of or to stay in things longer. Back in 2008, 2009, when I was selling positions uh, as the market ran up just before, sorry, in 2008, as the market was still increasing just before it came off, it was easy to sell stuff and and sit in cash for a long time because you were getting 3.3%. So now investors are um, disincentivized to hold cash and you have a conflict. You may not love this stock anymore, but if you think, odds are it's just going to be flat or not down, you may not sell it for longer than you would not sell it in a period before where you could get some return on cash. 
So I think it really messes up the incentive structure of investing. Full disclosure, we are talking to my mentors, my sisters from other misters, as it were, in my investing lifetime. Uh, Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters, and Jenny Van Leeuwen Harrington, CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill. Um, Jenny, Jenny, uh, where do I turn to right now if I am indeed uh, uh, kind of you know, bookended between cash that pays me nothing and uh, riskier stocks or, or riskier high-yield bonds where I really have not felt the risk of high yield since late 2008, 2009. Bad things can happen there. Credit quality can can turn. Um, you, do, I mean, you. what I love about you is you have this, this uh, appreciation of esoteric safe havens for income. Okay. That being said, if you really need cash, I think you just sit in cash and you suck it up and you earn nothing. And if you can't stomach the risk in your portfolio, moving along with bonds that will have fluctuation in stocks that will, you just need to know that you're going to earn nothing on cash and hold it, even though it's not but going aren't to you, you Let me ask and you, why don't you shed, out there. why don't you shed a tear or two for savers? Suppose, you know, before this mess in the mid-2000s, okay. you were on your best behavior, you saved money, you didn't you didn't maximize credit card debt, you didn't take out a liar loan or an all-day mortgage and everything, and you have lost real money in inflation. I mean, in real terms, in nominal terms, over the last six, seven years, when rates are at zero, the opportunity cost beforehand, rates were closer to four and a half, five percent Suppose like on a $100,000 balance, you've been hit really hard if you needed that money immediately. Right. When I was on that Bloomberg show with you a few years ago with Bonnie Quinn, I had had done um, a quick study in anticipation of the show. And what it showed was if you had a million dollars, half in the S&P 500 and half in, I think it was five-year treasuries or maybe it was 10-year treasuries, you were getting about 50000 a year of income. Now that same mix gives you something like 13000 a year. Hmm. I think it was... Six years ago, if you had $100,000 in a six-month CD, you got like $3,000, right? Because it was 3%. Now, last year, you would have gotten $130. Wait, hold on, hold on, though. But Lauren, Lauren, you know, at the same time, we're coming out of this crisis being told by Congress, being told by financial literacy people to save more, to live within our means. And yet it's prohibitively difficult to save because in real terms, you are losing money now. That's correct. And it is very difficult because of the, of the way the world works that you know, wages, we have stagnation in wages. So if things are costing more because of commodity prices and everything else, and yet you're making less, it's a problem. But I think people are being a little more creative and a little more smart, too, I'll say. You know, and again, I don't don't mean to, like, dwell on the millennials, but this is the generation that has more student debt than credit card debt, right? So these kids are coming out of school, and they're starting salaries. They're not able to cover the amount of student debt loan, you know, money that they're writing checks every month to Sally Mae and whatnot. I think it is very hard, but I think people are – I think they're a little more realistic about living large. Right. So um, all of the cliche status stuff that everybody wants, expensive cars and whatnot. I think these kids are a little bit smarter about it. Like we just did this funny story about millennials are more likely to lease a fancy car than to buy one because the the cost of the lease for an expensive car is actually a lot less. Don't you think it's that money and using it for something else? Well, it's become cliche to hear about millennials. But then there is that stat that they're on the verge of of inheriting something like. $30 $30 trillion generationally from their parents and grandparents. And by and large... Right. And the mindset that they're going into everything with, I, I like it. I like the sharing economy idea. Why not? Like, I'm all about sharing, Robin. You know sharing But what about when they get down to brass tacks, and this is a no-yielding world, 
And to make ends meet into retirement, when you worry about the solvency of Social Security or Medicare, you have to go in there. I mean, you, you saw what James Altucher, a prior guest, said. To, uh, my advice is to millennials is to not invest at all. Right. Yeah, that I didn't like that advice. What I mean, I what are they? Either. What are they supposed to do? They've seen their parents get burned twice uh, over the last decade. They've come out and and seen they saw banks get bailed out. Uh, what What are you supposed to do now? You get all but this be evidence a value of a fully. Investor. How do yeah. you How do you and, be a value investor? Wait, wait. Let's just define. They saw their parents get burned because the people who got burned were those who cashed out. So. In theory, a lot of people stayed in, too. So a lot of those kids probably, hopefully, saw their parents, some of them, stay in and end up fine throughout that time period. Those who didn't cash out are well ahead of where they were before. So it's the you know what worries me is the people who bought the house that they couldn't afford, right. live, you know, lived, used their house like the ATM, which I think is so silly. But it, they did. They took the money out and did other things with it that wasn't prudent. And... I think for those kids, it is scary. There, the, you know, there's some stat out there from one of the big banks that says like a third of them are are, are cautious in the market because their parents got burned. Mm-hmm. Right. Jenny, uh, talk to me about, um, you know, the, the world has turned several times. In the late 90s, it was the emerging markets that were the basket cases. And the United States stood strong with its dot-com riches and new economy thinking. And now it's kind of reverted back to, you know, the United States looks comparatively uh, uh, fitter now with Europe still sucking wind comparatively and emerging markets led by China having far slower growth than they did in the past. In fact, there's a huge concern out there if you listen to certain investors, maybe Jim Chanos, that China could derail the entire world. I mean, to what extent is it a concern of your clients asking you in your portfolio of kind of systemic risk, maybe even the biggest bubble in world history? Right. So the clients are definitely asking about that. They're asking about all the obvious China, Greece, interest rates, oil, Um, probably China being the biggest one. I think the hard thing as a portfolio manager is figuring out how to navigate around China. For example, right now I'm looking at Ford and GM as potential investments. The General Motors earnings call, which, by the way, is through the roof, some of the best numbers they've ever had, 75% of the call was spent on China. And so as a portfolio manager, as I need to analyze General Motors as a potential investment, suddenly the picture is not really about General Motors and what's going on here, but what's really happening in China. And if I can't get my arms around how that really affects GM, I probably can't buy it. So I think that it just opens up this whole new dynamic when you're looking at your your companies just figuring out like, all right, oh, another one in my portfolio is a company called TAL. They lease containers. They had a really tough quarter. They've had a really tough year because Asia trade route volumes are down. When I bought that stock five years ago. Isn't that because of the port strike? Um, no, it's because, I mean, that was part of it. Kind of got past that. But then just trade route volumes through Asia are, low, are slower than they were, which is telling about what's really going on in Asia. But when I bought that, I wasn't thinking about that, right? And now it's entered the investment process. So you're always just figuring out how to dance around it. I don't think there's a great solution. I think it's just on a case-by-case basis. Um, And figuring out how how you can strip out as much systemic risk as you possibly can it's not. I don't know that it's even possible, but you just try. You well, try Jenny, and stay away Jenny, from let me let me pummels. wax let me wax uh, mercenary and, and American, you know, fat American capitalist pig that I am. Isn't it good for us if China crashes hard? I don't think so. Why? I, I think it's too. I mean, I oil prices. Let's not forget, oil prices went down to ten dollars a barrel in the late in the late nineties. Um, that well, is great for the American consumer. Commodity prices tumbling again. You see. You see a kind of a lift effect when they're not competing as much with, uh, you know, they are the second largest economy in the world when they're not competing with the, the, the top dog for much of the 20th century. Isn't it on balance great for us? 
Maybe, but I, I mean, maybe way back when it could have been. I just think there's so much global intertwinement that I don't know how it plays out. And I think it's almost like one could have said, wouldn't Lehman collapsing be great for Goldman Sachs? But it wasn't. It was bad for everybody. It's not good for P&G, yeah. right? It's not good for companies. It's not good for GM. Right. So I, for I don't we don't like it. Again, yeah, though, we Lauren, vote. I we mean, vote no. <laughs> we vote no. I love that I've introduced you to I've made a shit up. I mean, it's not Sister Christian. It's it's, you know, Sister Lon's women. But that's fine. I, I like that. You know, you guys hit it off. You're going to go to Predamanje afterwards. You can get a smoothie on me downstairs. In the meantime, while I have you, Lauren, I am going to ask you, you're saying life is a set it and forget it thing. You believe in portfolio theory. You believe in keeping costs low, diversification high. To what extent do you need to diversify in this brave new world? After all, there are people like Jack Bogle at Vanguard who say the S&P 500 diversifies you sufficiently. It derives half of its its sales from abroad. Uh, so does that mean you don't need to diversify into emerging markets specifically? Yes-ish. Um, I think it's true that there is a lot of global diversification in a U.S.-based portfolio. There's no question about that. But I also think that there's interesting stuff out there that's not going to show up in the the typical, um, you know, S&P 500 portfolio. Um, I'm, I don't have a gold bug, for example. I know people. some people get really jazzed. Yeah, stop, and, and, stop and seize on that for a minute. Gold, right? You and I had to write a cover. We went kicking and screaming. <laughs> You've got the power to know. That's not me singing. I can't sing. That was Spando Ballet, by That's the beautiful. way. <laughs> what, is, what is gold? Baby, don't hurt me. What is gold in the grand meaning of things? It doesn't provide any income. It's just a dumb rock, right? It, unless you tip drill bits with it or cap teeth. I mean, it, it has no value other than its luster, its perceived store of value. So where I feel the same way about Bitcoins, right? So I feel like it, gold is the Bitcoin for the old people and Bitcoin is the gold for the young people. It's... Um, it is tangible. Okay, so it is a real thing, and it is worth some perceived value. Personally, I'd rather have gems. Um, I, I, that said, I was saying I don't have a giant gold bug. I don't. For me, I don't need it. I don't want it. But there is a subset of people who truly believe that it is an in, integral part of a diversified portfolio. There are people who truly believe that real estate is an integral part of a diversified portfolio. I also don't feel that strongly. I mean, for the individual investor, if you own a house, that's your real estate investment. Mm. But that's, you know, you're looking at it differently. So you were asking me, the, the big question was about diversification and what does it all look like? And I don't need to get as granular as some people, but you can get really granular and do it in a way that's not going to be dangerous to your overall portfolio. So hold my hand, Lauren. You have a son. I want to hold your hand. Here I am, the one day. that you love. I should I should have just, just let my whole Spotify playlist and that, that would just be episode alone with your 50 million Twitter followers. Okay, my son, I, you got you know this, Robin, but Jenny doesn't probably, although you may have read the, the this little piece that I sent you guys about my, my money philosophy. He was Warren Buffett for Halloween. Like what 10-year-old is Warren Buffett for Halloween? Because you're, you're, you're a sadistic mother. You're Jack? a sadistic mother. You'd want to be the Thomas train or something. <laughs> you dress him up as Warren Buffett? He wanted to be Warren Buffett. So who are you, Carol? Were you Carol Loomis or were you Becky Quick? Like what no, was that? I was I was I was not part of the. But he like went and looked at his portfolio and was when people were asking him questions about Coke, he was like giving them good responses about why he owned Coke. It was really funny. But 
Anyway, ask me about Leo. So T-minus, what, seven or eight years? Can you believe it already to him going to college? Maybe Penn State, maybe something bigger. What are you doing for his plan? As Jenny said earlier, the, the, the truth is revealed when you get into people's private money and their right. okay, individual so retirement I, accounts. This is one of the beautiful things about living in New York. It's a very expensive place to live. But New York State gives you a tax break um, for your investment in the State 529 plan, which is managed by um, Vanguard. And I religiously put suck away. It's not a lot. I put $200 a month. It's not enough if you look at the numbers, but I'm splitting the cost with his dad. Um, I'm putting $200 a month into an aggressive-based portfolio. And I have been religiously so since, you know, since the get-go. So there's a nice chunk of change in there. Not only am I doing that for Leo, I actually decided a long time ago that for my nephews, buying them a molded plastic toy of some sort or some video game was a stupid idea and not a good amount, you know, good investment. And I've been putting money religiously, $50 every quarter for them. And they both have, you know, a solid amount well, of money. Well, they don't even get a squeeze on the cheek or a bonbon or a Twinkie or anything, just a stock certificate? I buy crap for them. But, you know, I, I do buy them like T-shirts and stuff. But the bottom line is, is that I feel like the gift of college is, you know, that's that's a real solid gift. Well, Jenny, your son was born on the March loaf. You come Jack at the low. <laughs> Rally Jack. Rally, Rally Jack. Jack. I keep getting that wrong. <laughs> um, how has that affected your thinking? And as you look ahead, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of concern. Is college worth it? Am I going to max out? Do I go in the state prepaid plan? Am I better off earning on my own? When It's one thing. I, I, this is a real fascinating question to me personally, and this is why I wanted to kind of open it up to the world and, and bring out these mics, because I would ask you this question personally uh, as you being a mentor like you're doing this for your kids your kids are older than mine these are questions that are being answered in a different way than you would holding your clients hands um, how are you looking at uh, investing through the prism of their eyes their future that's so hard to answer um so I think about this a lot, right? Because I have a daughter who all signs point to her growing up to be an artist, and Jack is convinced that he wants to be a scientist. And I think it's hard to live in this world with low-paying salaries, which they might, which they might have. But at the same time, I'm a big believer in not leaving too much to your kids. So I, I think about this all the time. I don't have a great answer for it um, with respect to saving for college and and that. I don't know what the what the world's going to hold in 11 years or 12 years when Jack goes to school. I'm on the board of trustees of my alma mater, Holland's College in Virginia, which is a small – sorry, Holland's University. It was Holland's College when I was there. Um, and one of the things they talk about a lot is that people balk from going to liberal arts schools because they see just the price tag. But there's so much financial aid that when you actually do the math on it, it's not that crippling. So I don't – I have I'm not close enough yet to have gone through the math – but I feel like I'm not quite ready to to feel like college is impossibly but the question, expensive. But the question that a lot of people want to ask me, and my children are not as old as yours. They're just slightly younger. But how do you tactically position your children in a world – and you could say this at any point in time, Lauren, any point in time, Jenny. The world has never been so confusing. It's never been so scary. The death of multilateralism. Inflation is on the brink. The Fed's going to hike. I mean it was a scary world in 1981 and in 1982. It was a scary world in 1991. It was a scary world in 2001. Um, as as best as you can, when you kind of look into your crystal ball, is this going to be a period of capital preservation for our kids? Is it going to be a period of inflation? I mean, I feel like I, I would be irresponsible for me to just have faith in an asset allocation model going into a really treacherous period after unprecedented interest rate policy. How, how worried are okay. you, Jenny, about inflation? I'm not. 
in the long run. So so I guess if I'm going to straight up answer that question then, I'm not worried about inflation. And I'm like, look, my kids are probably going to inherit some major part of my IRA, right? That's probably what will be left over for them, mine and my husband's, and it's all in stocks, right? And it's always going to be. And I don't worry at all. And it will grow. And I don't know if it's going to grow at 3% between now and when they grow up or 5% or 8%. It's probably not. I doubt it'll be more. But I'm all in. And you know why? Because they're good companies that we invest in. And those companies are going to grow. And I feel like if you if you can just take that step back and make it really plain vanilla, that's that. But I'm not tactically doing anything thinking of Jack when he's 40 or Brooksy when she's 30. I'm just planning... So, Robin, you'll love this. I got a letter. My son's away at camp for the summer, and I got a letter the other day that said, Dear Mom, Evan's sick for the third time, and I made $10 today. He's running a black market in summer camp. He's selling cup of noodles <laughs> with, with like, a 200% markup. I think, you're raising your son, I think you're raising your son for the state penitentiary, not, uh, you know, financial So I am not worried. Because at least he'll be white collar. Right. This kid's going to take care of me as well. He's, he's, he's Leo, how do you like Club <laughs> Fed? Let's take you to Club Fed for this summer. Um, I do want to take it back to your, you mentioned it earlier, Lauren, August 13th, 1979. Uh, you were partying hardy back then. Business Week had a cover that said the death of equities, how inflation is destroying the stock market. Obviously, that was fatal time on their part. We proceed to have the best 20-year bull run in stock market history. Uh, but then there are these people right now who are saying, you want an inflation hedge? You're worried about rates going up? Go to stocks, man. It's not like there's any opportunity in bonds that are rate sensitive. How does it work both ways, that the market's waiting with bated breath, terrified that rates are going to go up, and yet other people are saying, if you want to have a hedge on inflation, you buy uh, assets of companies that are growing earnings faster than inflation. Well, it works because most people don't understand bonds, right? That means that, most well, people don't work. understand <laughs> any of this. That's why I brought you guys on. Right. Most people, well, honestly, if they I get had, this far in this show, God bless you. I mean, we want to give them I, right. real advice, want to give them real hardcore advice. I mean, really, come on, talk to me. The hardcore advice is be consistent, be strong, meaning do not second guess yourself, because those are the two the, you, you, investors are their own worst enemies. OK, right. so all of these things that you're talking about, it's the reaction to concerns about stocks crashing or bonds crashing. It's all about reaction. And at the end, if you look at the Ibbotson charts or whatever it is over the long haul, the market does what the market does. So you can get all crazy and in your head about it, but it's not really going to matter. And that goes back to when we were talking before about the kids who saw their parents get burned. If a third saw their parents get burned, what happened to the other two-thirds? The other two-thirds saw their parents stick it out and ride out that long market cycle, right? You know, I had the privilege of uh, keeping in touch with my high school economics professor, Mr. Lutness, who's one of these formative professors who kept in touch with me over the years, heard me on the radio, visited with me uh, earlier this year. And we drove around and I was like, you know, I, I wish there were like five or six things you had told me when I was a, a, a spaz as a senior in college trying to get into, as a senior in high school trying to get into this college. I said, why didn't you tell me X, Y, Z? He goes, stop. And he, he's there with his wife. He's like, your reality, your normal is when you graduate from college, what the environment is like. And what the environment was like for me, I mean, what's kind of psychologically time-stamped it for me was Russia falling apart, was Wall Street collapsing, was uh, the, the second or third inning of the dot-com bubble, uh, a, a lot of uncertainty. I mean, you remember, Jenny, I, I you had to take my Series 7, and I didn't even know if I'd have a job because, uh, you know, this was like the worst crash for Wall Street in a long time. It brought the bull market to an end. And I worry, you know, really, how much has the world changed? 
changed that much. We see things that are so cyclical, like they told us oil would never fall down below the triple digits, and here it is closer to $50 than it is $100. They said commodities, we're going to have a super cycle You know, 20 years from now. Uh, nobody would be able to afford to fly. Uh, gold was headed to $3,000 an ounce. Um, I, I just, you know, I keep going back to how terrified I was when I had to take my securities licensing exam. Oh, you know, every college graduate is terrified, Robin, unless you're like, the rockiest of rock stars, it's scary out there to be on your own and to have to figure it out. That's just scary. And nobody preps you for that. That's just the reality of life. Laura, where yes, did you have your where did you have your investing coming of age? Your first byline or the first time you were you were aware of things that were going on in the market? So in, I was in college in 1987 at Penn State. And when the stock market crashed, I was the campus editor and I had to write about the university endowment and what the impact was on the endowment. Mm. And um no one knew what the I mean, they knew the endowment was was hit that day and was invested in big blue chip companies and whatnot. But that was really I always tell people my first market story that I ever wrote. Um, I also graduated during a recession. It was not a great time. It took me like a year to find a real job in journalism. Um, but I found it. And I think that people who are really motivated and you see these kids, they're hungry kids. My boss just came back from a big conference and he interviewed. He said like 30 amazing um, almost graduate college graduates. He was like, these kids are unbelievable. What they can do, their personal um, achievements are so above and beyond whatever ours were at that age. Because there's a desperation of having to kind of prove yourself just to not That's have to live great. with your parents. A desperation to prove is the best thing that you can have. But isn't there always, I was just reading one of my, one of the market strategists that I subscribe to, Ed Yardani wrote a piece last week, and he was saying how he had just gotten back from a Billy Joel concert, and he played that We Didn't Start the Fire song. And apparently he wrote it in 1989, um, right around when he turned 40. And he'd been talking to a kid who was 20 who said, oh, you had it so easy. Everything was so tame when you were growing up. Right. So this kid, so Billy Joel was born in 49. This kid was born in 69. The kid who was turning 20 thought he had it so tough. Billy Joel thought he had it he had it so tough. And apparently in that, we didn't start the fire. There's like 100 headlines that were taken from 1949 to 1989. You listen to that. It's as terrifying as it feels now. And I think we just go back to that. It always feels crazy. And you just go as an investor, you just you invest in companies that are going to be okay. And, and by the way, it's okay back. to make mistakes. I mean, you don't want to make massive, massive mistakes, but it's great to make mistakes when you're young to take chances Absolutely. because that's where you learn. Absolutely. Jenny Van Leeuwen, you had, you know, what's what's fascinating, I think, to listeners out there is you were by no means going into college an investor. This almost happened by accident. Your passion was was horses, was ponies, right? I wanted and you, to be a veterinarian. You wanted to be a veterinarian, and in your in your stable life, <laughs> you found out about this gig on Wall Street. Tell us about That's that. Right. So I was taking care of a barn, mucking stalls, and I was also a cashier to pay for my riding habit. And I loved counting the money in the drawer, right? I just, I liked it. I still do. I like counting money. I like, I like putting coins in those little paper holders. I've always liked Can you liked come that. to my house? I have a <laughs> lot of coins. I always love it. <laughs> so, um, so I'm riding and I'm riding with um, one, of the, one of the clients of the stable. And I say, oh, what does your husband do? She says, he's a money manager. I said, I love managing money. Do you think he would want a free intern? And she said, let me ask him. So I thought managing money was counting money in drawers. So thankfully, um, I found out what it really was. I went and I interned for Keefe Managers in 1994. 
and fell in love with this business. It was infinitely interesting. You could never know enough. And the cool thing about being there then was that it was right when the bank and thrift merger boom started to happen. So they were really having me call people like Jamie Dimon back then and say, please hold for the portfolio manager. And if you vote with this deal or against this deal or if you agree, we're going to sell all our stocks. So it was very heated, very exciting. Lots of young people. But I fell into it by happenstance. And then you reported, you, uh, you know, long story short, you got this fat gig at Goldman Sachs. I mean, you were right. there. They, you started in 1997. It was a parlous time, really hot times for the market. I think the market had its best year in a generation well, the, uh, in 97, but the rest of the world was crashing. But the funny thing, too, Robin, is here I was coming from Hollins, this tiny school in Virginia. And as you remember, our analyst classes were about 103, 105 people, and a few of us were non-Ivy League, right? And... I, I still think that one of the reasons why I got that job was because people at the time, they were saying everyone's leaving Wall Street to go to Silicon Valley, right? So there were openings for people who were non-Ivy, and it wasn't the hottest place to be. And, and I've been hearing that this time around, too. Wall Street's having a hard time. The investment business is having a hard time. We're losing to Silicon Valley. So it's interesting to see just in my 20-year career that cycle happen already. Now, Lauren, in your time as a uh, as a financial writer, which is now going back, I mean, do we say it's like a twenty two year career so far in financial yep. writing? Yep. Yes. Was has it ever uh, looking back? Has it ever been normal? Obviously, even even Pimco has uh, sworn off the old new normal cliche. But when we, when they when we came out of kind of the subprime crisis, people saying that this is going to be a the credit bubbles exploded and this, there was a standard of living bubble. Well, yes and no. I mean, luxury goods retailers are doing really well. Real estate is super resurgent. Miami, I mean, the skyline has never been as as occupied as it is now, just a few years after a depression there. Um, uh, has it ever been normal? I mean, looking back, when you try to interpolate both interest rates, consumer sentiment, uh, the economy uh, going at kind of its natural rate without uh, extraordinary Fed stimulus, can you pick a year or two in your in your time frame where it was normal? I'm thinking. I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> but I wonder... There's always something. There's always something happening, which is what makes it interesting. Jenny was talking about what, what attracted to this business. It's the same thing for me. It's like, because there is always something new. There's always, you know, some new trend. Like, we're in the cybersecurity trend right now. Um, and the Silicon Valley, the Intels. And remember when there were all these software companies. And the B2Bs and the C2Cs. Right. And you had to figure out what those all meant. <laughs> I wonder, though, if you differentiate, is it normal versus is it manipulated? And I, and I have a sensation that we're in a more manipulated environment now than How, we were when you, we started in the business. Can you explain why? I feel like the Fed, this might be naive, but I feel like the Fed and the central banks have more control and are more controlling and manipulating of interest rates right now. I feel like trading is far more manipulated electronically than well, it was. Well, that's true. It used yes. to be, you know, if someone had 50,000 shares of IBM, you knew who it was, you knew how it was going down. And so that's bringing in an, um, some degree of opacity and into Well, Jenny, why why, why aren't rates higher then? We, we you know, we have a, a, a huge, hugely tight real estate market right now. You have cities where there's really real estate inflation, obviously, even if you back out New York and San Francisco, but you go to, you know, top 10 markets, to supply is really tight. Private equity's got involved in the game. Uh, assets have been resurgent. Uh, um, you know the stock market, the junk bond markets, employment, hiring hasn't followed suit in earnest. But if you were to say, like, if we if we backed out uh, the, the the kind of the Federal Reserve's emergency rates, where do you think interest rates should be right now? Where do they feel like they should be? 
I feel like they should be maybe around where they were in 08, 09, maybe three and a half, four percent on the 10-year treasury, something like that. Something like that feels like at least you're being rewarded for taking on risk, right? And right now it feels like if you're buying, I mean, I I looked at muni bonds last week out of curiosity and I said, I ran a screen um, and I said, okay, show me everything with over a 1.8 percent yield. I don't care what time frame. And the earliest date that I could find anything trading out there, anything being offered in Muniland was 2019. And they were terrible municipal credits. They're everything that you hear about that has a problem. And you had to go out, I don't know, to 2024, 2025, just to get 1.8% return in a semi-decent municipality. And that's if you just want to buy and hold the bond, right? I think there's plenty of trading opportunity. But to me, to buy a seven-year-out Chicago bond and get like 2% or 1%, that feels like a disconnect between the return that you're getting for the risk that you're actually taking. Well, forget that. I mean, things got so um, so skinny, so dreggy in 2012 and 2013, I think, that some companies like McDonald's and Caterpillar, the University of Pennsylvania, were able to issue 50, 100-year debt, uh, like in the low single right. digits. I mean, for right. you know, that's what, that's what blows my mind. I mean, Lauren, there's this criticism out there that bond investors do not know what a bond bear market or a bond crash is like. The last time we ever had anything like this was in 1994 when Alan Greenspan— I was going to say 93, 94. That's when I started writing about bonds. But I did you, I mean, you, you might know that, but you talk to most people on a bond desk right now. They're younger guys. They know the Greenspan Fed. They know the Bernanke Fed and, and now Yellen doing this. There's no—even with clients, I mean, and Jenny will get into this, do people know that they can actually lose money on bonds? So can I give an interesting— side on this. My prediction is that over the next year, we start to hear about lawsuits for people suing based on having all bond portfolios. A friend of mine, nowhere local, said that one of her firm's clients is suing them right now for having an all bond portfolio because they did not understand the risks. I haven't heard that in this career. And then I was telling another friend about that and she said, oh yeah, I've heard about the same thing happening. So the one One's on a taxable bond portfolio, one's on a municipal bond portfolio. So I don't think they do. And I think it's I think we're going to look back in a year and have heard that story so many times over that it feels like the way we heard that story so many times over stocks. coming out of 0809. And yeah. you, and just to add on to that, though, investors, it doesn't matter. They don't understand stocks either. They just don't understand. They don't understand risks. They don't understand what it means, what the tax issues are when you sell something. Right. I mean, it's super important stuff, but... It's just not explained. I was thinking about something you said, though, Robin. You know, I remember in the in the go go late go go nineties, the it was the the era of the individual investor, right? I mean, it was all about the hot stocks and everything. Like th- that time is so long ago. Right. We are in such an institutional market right now. Individual investors have no power. They have no. They have no cred. They have. No, I mean, there's nothing there for them, and uh, and that's the that's the disconnect because because the market is so geared towards institutions and individuals have no say. They have they they, they don't understand because no one cares about them. Well, Lauren, tell me. I mean, the good side of that, some people say, is that it's taken money. And no offense, no offense, uh, Jenny. I think Jenny is the smart money, but it's taken money away from dumb money mutual funds, the ones that I perennially yeah, lag I mean, their benchmarks. So this the other thing that's changed too is when I started. Started in in the early '90s, it was the beginning of the mutual fund explosion, and you know, fund managers were like Jeff Vinnick and Fidelity, like all these people were rock stars. You know, the post Peter Lynch era, you you talked about fund managers like they were Bono. 
Right. And now no one name no one could name I bet you if you went on the street right now and said, Tell me the name of five mutual fund managers that no one could even name one. I don't think they even know who Bill, Bill Gross is. But similarly, they don't know who the CEO of BlackRock is. They don't know who the CEO of Vanguard is. These have become kind of anonymous, right. passive uh, of, of holders. It's like be the market, don't beat the market, right? Right. I mean, I wonder if you ask somebody who's the most famous CEO in America right now, who they would say. Oh, gosh, I think they say Donald Trump, sadly. Yeah. Oh, well, God. that's today. But if you asked them a year ago, what would they have said? You know, mm. it, for a while with Steve Jobs. But like, who is that person now? The bottom. And I, I think that anonymity of of these institutions isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it is good to not, you know, we always talk about you're putting your eggs in one basket, but not being so focused on like the the people as much as the institution isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it's just, that is a very that, – that has changed a lot in the time that I've been doing this. Remember the old E-Trade? Sorry. Full disclosure, this is such a treat for me, uh, joined by my sisterhood of mentors, uh, Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters, and Jenny Van Leeuwen-Harrington, CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill. Uh, Lauren was uh, one of my first co-workers when I went into journalism at Smart Money Magazine, and Jenny was my— He was my, such a nice boy. Oh, I squeezed my cheeks. Jenny was my first interview of 34 at Goldman Sachs in 1998, and she helped get me that uh, that job. Um catastrophically. Uh, but no, thank you. Thank you anyway for that. <laughs> Jenny, um, talk to me about uh, the, the, the perception that maybe, you know, you're trying to educate clients and people out there that you're dealing with a whole different asset class. You're not trying to tell them to compare their uh, lot in life to the market, that actually you're providing them capital preservation and income, and not to look at things in terms of bonds or stocks, but the, the security of um, dividends that come out over several years, and uh, how you can participate with companies uh, that are covering their own tails, and by extension, will cover their their um, their shareholders' rear ends in sort of any environment. I think this extends uh, way beyond just how I'm working with clients, but a lot of all of almost all of the advisors that I work with struggle with this, which is managing to the ben- the concept of the clients managing to the benchmark versus managing to, managing to their objectives. Uh, and, uh, well, unpack managing to the benchmark out for us. It's just comparing gonna, yourself to... Okay. Yeah. So it also goes back to what Lauren was saying about people just not understanding. So managing to the benchmark is, I heard the S&P's up 3%. Why am I not? I heard that this, you know, portfolio, this hedge fund is up 20%. Why are we not doing that well? And only taking those sound bites. Whereas... In the last several years, if you had that 60-40 portfolio, you weren't keeping up with the S&P. And, and I think people really don't understand what the different risks and returns on, on different asset classes are. So managing to the objective is, let's say you've got your guy that we were talking about before with a million dollars, and and if they were just in straight, straight in the S&P and in five-year treasuries, maybe they'd get 13000 But you know what? They need a lot more income off of that. So they go with a different strategy. They go with different kinds of bonds, they go with different kinds of stocks. Those stocks may not keep up with the S&P 500, but the portfolio is throwing off forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year for them. So it's doing exactly what they need it to. But when they hear the S&P is up 10%, their portfolio isn't. If the S&P were up 10%, it wouldn't, or if their portfolio were up 10%, it may not be giving them what they need. What they need is super, super consistent income. And then that goes back to the risk of bonds, too. Bonds may make sense for people, even if they're going up and down. At least it is in high-quality companies, very consistent income. So if they have an allocated portfolio and there's a heavier component of bonds because that's what they want and that's what makes sense for them and they just need that steady income, they are not going to keep up with the stuff that they hear on on 
the news about the S&P reached a new high today. The market's up 5% today, but it's doing just what they want. So we're all struggling with this concept and uh, of trying to give the clients what they actually need for, uh, versus just keeping up with headlines. I mean, Lauren, even the masters of the universe, hedge funds are are struggling with this right now. They're trying to tell their clients to look at things in terms of absolute return and uh, don't look at don't look at the the benchmark. They've been eviscerated. There's been a mass dieout since 2008, and and you know, which I'm happy about. I think it's a good thing. Right, but pe- there were people out there that were willing to pay top dollar, two percent and twenty percent, three percent and thirty percent. It's 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 not it's, again as a value investor. Like, why would you pay so much money for? Yeah, you get a little bit of alpha, but or you can get a lot, but still, you're the fees and the ugh, and the right. lockups, and why would you do that to yourself? And over the long run, it's probably going to revert to the mean and give you a market like return. So, Lauren, is that a hopeful note then that that they are mortal? They're like the rest of us, and anyone with five hundred dollars can open up a small Vanguard or brokerage account and do better than hedge funds do. <sighs> I don't want them to think that you're going to do better. You just do good, do well enough. You know, it's. I love competition, Robin. I love you know that I'm ahead of you in Twitter followers. <laughs> I mean, but, 10, um, fifty million times <laughs> as many Twitter followers. But, but at the end of the day, when it comes to money, you know, it's like clawing to get that extra little bit. The reach that you have to do, I just don't think it's worth it. I don't want to. I don't want the investment risk there. The cost-benefit analysis doesn't work. For Correct, me. but never before have you been able to just put in, you know, like no minimum amounts. I mean, it's really you talk about the area of the ETF, and it's been a true democratization. Anyone can get it. You don't need a one eight hundred number. You don't fill, have to fill out a form and get a cashier's check and mail it to Vanguard or Fidelity or Putnam or anything. It's you know, for better or for worse, anyone has access. And this is going back to the old Jack Bogle Boglehead school of thought to the the basket of, you know, low-cost, passively-managed index funds. And we see evidence that that's actually beat the prevailing hedge fund strategy over the last seven years. But the the, the irony is is that all the volatility we have in the market is because of hedge funds parking money in ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and trading them so actively. They're not, you know, they're not meant to be buy-and-hold investments per se, but they're not bad buy-and-hold investments. But truth be told, it's hedge funds that are creating volatility in the markets because they're using ETFs as a place to put money, and they're just pulling them in and out, um, cash in and out, and that creates volatility. So it's bad. Lauren Young, did you ever know that you're my hero? I knew I was your hero. I can fly higher than an eagle. When I hear your voice, honestly, you can be 400 miles away. And you it just... are the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> By the way, we would be doing this in a private phone call. So for the entire world to hear it's it true. is really it's all, cathartic for me. There has not been any Miami Vice reference yet, Robin. Wow, right. We'll save you for That's a bizarre. Miami Vice episode. Jenny, uh, close us out with some words of wisdom. Look into your crystal ball. Uh, you know, you get client calls left and right and, and you get, you charge for this, but, but you know, give some out for free right now to the millions and millions of listeners that I have, especially after Lauren retweets this eight times. So here's what I'm working on with clients is the idea of being careful where you set your baseline. And what I find people constantly doing is saying, okay, my portfolio um, is at $950,000. It used to be at a million. What happened? What happened? Why am I down so much? Meanwhile, if we'd gone back a year ago and the portfolio was at 950000 they were thrilled. The portfolio was up so much. So people are constantly resetting their baseline to the highest possible, to the highest possible point. And I think then they play some pretty tricky 
potentially really damaging mental accounting games with themselves and start to get scared and start to get freaked out. So I think we go back to Lauren saying, look, over the very long trend from the beginning of tracking the broad market, the market trends up. Right. I don't know if it's going to trend up 4 percent or 10 percent, but it's going to be somewhere probably in that range. So don't worry about the fact that you've set your baseline in your head and you had a flavor for that million dollar portfolio. But now it is what it is. Sit back, relax, tough it out. And don't worry that, you you know, that you're not, quote unquote, worth as much as you were before. Just enjoy the fact that you've had a good ride over the last few years, that your portfolio hopefully is working for you. Um, and, oh, by the way, you have a house over your head and hopefully you have a job, you know. Right. You know. You've got income coming from it. But setting that baseline constantly to the highest point, I think, is really unhealthy and can cause you to make some really bad decisions and have some undue anxiety. And on that, the, on that soothing thought, alas, alack, agad, you were listening to my investing sisters from other misters. They love me. They really love me. Lauren, Jenny, I'm squeezing my cheeks for you from uh, 400 miles away. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Robin. Adieu and farewell. Full disclosure, we are laddered, low-cost, equal-weighted, inflation index, growth at a reasonable price, always climbing walls of worry. Listen to us on NPR One, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, on WRIR, Wednesday and Sunday mornings. On Facebook and Twitter, you can find us at Foldy Radio. Our engineers in Virginia is John Valentine. Up in Manhattan, Manoli Weatherill of NPR New York. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. But your motor-